Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Calling an audible tonight, folks. I was going to come out with some muse I've been listening to, but uh, due to the news, Excelsior. Excelsior. The word means ever upward, loosely. And it was the, uh, well, the motto, really. Stanley. The man so much behind the characters a lot of people have come to know and love through the Marvel Cinematic Universe, through, I mean, originally through the comic book universe that he and Jack Kirby largely and others created. And he died today, uh, earlier today at 95. Um, and for all the news that's out there today, and, and Troy, welcome to the show this evening. Hey, bud. For all the news is out there today, I saw the most response from people of all walks of life about Stanley. I mean, it is unreal. There's a lot going on today. A lot of contentious crap going on with. And I mean, it's just not good for us. The recounts and the all the fighting over how ballots are counted, not in one state but several. It's not good for us. The fires out in California are uh, horrific, and. Um, Whatever you want to blame for that, there's something that needs to be done practically to try to mitigate any future fires. But it, the most I saw people remarking on was Stan Lee. Yeah. Because of how much he, uh, I don't know, how much he influenced American culture. One person said he, you might be able to consider him America's greatest modern writer, maybe next to Stephen King, in terms of influence. Yeah, although that might go to Jack Kirby. Right. Um, but he did a good job of... He had this thing called Stan Soapbox when he took over. or Actually, I think he created Marvel. And uh, it was like sort of like an editorial that he did where he would respond to fans. And this was in the 70s before he stepped down. Yeah. Well, and he, I was reading earlier today the origins of Excelsior, that he was saying all sorts of things at the end of his stand soapbox, like, enough said, uh, good night and good luck. I mean, he would just say whatever phrases, and his competitors at D.C. and other places, other outlets like that, were stealing some of his catchphrases. So he's like, hmm, let me come up with something that, that probably won't steal, because they won't know what it means. <laughs> so we came up with Excelsior, which does mean ever upward. It's also the state motto for New York State. And with Stanley being from there, I guess it would have been easy to think of. And in a way, we've talked about this, Troy, where it's it's modern myth-making. But I don't know if he ever expected it, where he is he took part in creating Spider-Man. He took part in creating Iron Man, the Avengers, uh, Thor. Uh, like all the Black Panther, though that's Jack Kirby as well. Uh, Stan Lee, even if he wasn't the sole creator, had his fingers in so many different characters that have now been taken as a model to, you can make a movie out of it. You can create new iterations of the comic book. As far as I know, Spider or Iron Man was actually a challenge put forth to him to create a superhero that no one would like <laughs> and make people like him. Wow. So take a guy who's essentially an a-hole. Yeah. And, uh... Has no superpowers to speak of other than being incredibly intelligent. Right. And having him make the Iron Man suits. And then you create this whole ethos that is Tony Stark, which I will say would not... I would say the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe would not be what it is today without two people. And that, well, okay, three people. <laughs> so, like the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> Stan Lee, Robert Downey Jr., 
and uh, it's not Bob Iger. It, that's the CEO of Disney. It's the the guy that runs. Oh, Marvel. Uh, oh my goodness, Feige, Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige. Yeah. Well, and that I and I agree. Those three, and a special hat tip to John Favreau, who directed Iron Man, helped get the cinematic universe off the ground. Yeah. Who was able to, and that that really is what pulled me in. I'm not a big comic book nerd. I've it wasn't my thing. It just wasn't. Right. But I can remember vividly in 08 going to see Iron Man with my dad. And ever since, you know, I might have a little falling out or I got interested in other things, but those movies have been there for over a decade now. And they've been incredible to watch. It's been an artistic feat. So I wonder what it was like. Because Stan Lee, there's now super cuts out there. I shared it on my Facebook page of every cameo he had in every Marvel movie, whether the cinematic universe or not, and other you know Marvel properties like Deadpool. He had a he actually had a cameo in the PlayStation Four Spider-Man game. Wow. Okay. Just as a, and I think he was in a Teen Titans, and that's DC. And uh, he's been in a couple of animes too. Well, and just to have him, he almost created himself in within that universe as a character. Like he is the creator in that universe. And but to have him as a humble sort of Easter egg, right? And all these different properties and iteration of these ideas is amazing. Um, and I don't know. I ran across something uh, earlier today because you know his his death again. Stanley has died at ninety five today. It's always sad when somebody passes, but the more I kept reading, I didn't know much about him personally. He had a very full life. Um, he was devoted to his wife. He he sort of shunned any social activity outside of work. The most you could get him to do for the most part is go to a lunch or maybe go see a movie. But it would always be zip home to the wife, and I think his wife died last year. Yeah, so it's, it had to be over you know fifty, sixty years of marriage. Yeah, and so it's, it's kind of remarkable how that happens when someone's loved one dies. Yeah, there oh. are there are at least two separate heart conditions that are basically broken heart syndrome. One is hmm. an immunosuppression thing that happens, and another one is it's called like Tatsubo or Tatsuka hmm. something, and that's the the weakening of the lining of the heart. And they're both related to stress-related anxiety, really. But mm. what happens is you see it a lot in people that have had a loved one pass, particularly someone who has been in a relationship with someone for a long time. Yeah. So they call it broken heart syndrome. Well, The Atlantic put out something that Stanley did for them on their 150th anniversary. And it's essentially America's idea is an idea. And... Stan Lee essentially wrote and had... Let me see who it is. Um, the comment below, Stan Lee offers a powerful definition of the American idea. It was illustrated by Anthony Wynn, first published in November 2007. And Stan Lee wrote, America's a dream, a vision, a miracle based on one noble idea, the idea that people of every race and religion can live together in peace that everyone is entitled to equal justice under the law, and that government is responsible to the govern. I would put that simply as, yeah, liberty. But yes, he's absolutely right. But an idea, despite its awesome power, can be dangerously vulnerable. It must be sheltered and guarded, nourished and protected. Few things are more tragic than the death of an idea, especially one which has been a shining beacon for the entire world. And then he goes through, well, I mean, this is 07, so this is still, yeah. It, 2007, when we graduated high school, Troy, is, yeah. my goodness, we're 11 years away from that event. 70 years, by the way. He was married for 70, 70 years. years. Yeah. My goodness. Shout out to my dad for sending that information. 1947 to 2017. Wow. That's incredible. Well, it shows... Uh, not only devotion, but talk about an anchor as somebody in somebody's life. Oh, for sure. It probably was his secret. Like, he had a stable home life. Or, like, it, I'm sure there are fights or whatever. But, like, he had a, a cornerstone there. That's what life is. It's what I really... And stuff I was reading, he would always go home. Whether he was either at work or at home. 
and he loved spending time at home, and he was there by 5.35, 45 every evening, if he could be. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, but uh, this is written in 07, but he still is, it still applies today someone. He said, today the American idea is menaced as never before, where variety had once been the source of our incalculable... That was a poor, poor uh, pronunciation of that word. Look, you you have a long tongue, and incalculable. There you go. Strength. It has now brought an era of growing divisiveness among our people, a feeling of us against them, regardless of who the them might be. All right then. He goes into some of the issues. Hey, they still kind of divide us today. With medical care, we can find no consensus. Is the warming of Earth mere fancy or fact? The Democrats just took back the House. Arguments over medical care. What's the big spat between Trump right now and the governor of California? It's over these wildfires. Trump's like, hey, bad forest management. It was forest mismanagement. Jerry Brown's like, oh, really? This from a guy who denies global warming and climate change. Uh, okay. Uh, whatever. Uh, before we get back on the Stanley thing, yeah, can we just talk about that valley that has the 70 mile an hour winds and has for thousands of years? Right. If you have a fire in that valley that's big enough, those winds aren't going to blow it out. They're going to move it. Right. And they're not cold winds. No. They're hot winds. They've been hot. They come from the desert. And they scoot through that valley. Of course, there's going to be more flames. Well, and I did. Don't, a, don't develop there. And, and also, it wasn't a tactful thing for the president to tweet out. Well, surprising. Right. How surprising. But I did just a quick little, you know, Google Wayback search a few years ago. Hot topic of the California legislature and just in the state in general is forest management yeah. because of fires. So, you know, the president had a point, but. Everybody wants to yell climate change, which even if, like, if you agree, which I tend to be convinced by the science, how is taxing carbon or reducing emissions right now going to stop you from having fires, California? It's not. It's not. The, The political answers to climate change are not good ones, and they seem like pseudo economic answers yes that being said climate change is not going to cause things to happen it's going to make things worse a tornado that would normally be a cat one over time tornadoes in an area that are cat ones will be cat threes hurricanes get bigger because they can draw more warmth from the ocean things of that nature things just get worse things don't really change other than maybe sea level and a couple other things, but weather phenomena just get more powerful. Right. If we could deliver that to people and be like, instead of being like, oh my God, emissions. Right. Just be like, look, you remember that that hurricane we had last year? That's going to be worse. And my approach to climate change is prepare for worse events so better just better forest management better building codes like just build things better prepare for the worst make sure your levees aren't going to break if you know you have a city underwater say in louisiana uh you know it, there are certain things you need to prepare for given your circumstances and then on top of that if you're worried about you know the use of fossil fuels you want alternative methods then we need i would say to let markets handle it and normally i would agree with you but the oil companies only spent one percent last year on green initiatives wouldn't it be wouldn't it behoove them to increase their market value in untapped markets especially a market that is an unlimited resource such as sunlight or wind or wave instead of a finite resource that is oil when they have all of that money to invest in those things. I wouldn't look to them to be the ones that do it. You wouldn't? No. 
If you were the CEO of an oil company, would you, or would you just keep riding the money train? I would keep riding the money train, and I would uh, keep rent-seeking. I, I couldn't do it. No, but I mean, I actually, personally, I would be looking for alternatives. But I don't think if you're the head of an oil company, you would be the head of that oil company very long if you say, hmm, I want to increase our, our uh, research budget, you know, 5%, 10%. I think it's more than just a given CEO. I think it's a lot of people that are looking at short-term gains. Right. Um, now, but I think in the long run, it won't be necessarily the current oil companies that are the ones that end up benefiting from innovation. I mean, it's generally, though, I think the right approach is innovate our way out of the problem and largely have open markets for that innovation so it is done at the most efficient and lowest cost. Because you can have, I guess, state-backed industries, or you could have grants, you could have all sorts of stuff. I don't know if that is the, actually the most efficient way to go about it. And don't get me wrong, there's, I think, current benefits or current advantages, and this is what I mean by rent-seeking, given to oil companies right now, uh, that maybe should be looked at. In terms of fracking or offshore drilling? Uh, no, I mean in terms of like tax benefits, these sort of things. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Or it could be certain regulatory cutouts. Or it's it's uh, it gets complicated when you have these companies that are very much relied on, um, and rightfully so. Like I, I don't think I'm not here to badmouth oil companies in the sense that you know, essentially the world economy works because of these companies. The, the petrodollar. Yeah, it's you know it's an incredible thing. You know, really, if you look at it, the history of fossil fuels is is remarkable. From if you, the point of view of energy being, we need energy to be incredibly impactful, dense in the sense that you don't need of a certain type of energy source. It's dense. It can really pack a punch for things that we need, and it's cheap. Well, that's how I think we a big part of why we're so wealthy today and have been able to do so much because we created energy sources that are dense and cheap. And so I think the idea is to use those current sources that are dense and cheap and knowing that they're finite and work towards a future where, yeah, there's other things. And I think it'll be figured out. I'm actually very hopeful on this front. I, it seems I, I, we have a different view of what the hope is. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. I really am, in the sense that I think the cost of alternatives will start continue to come down. And I generally don't like what you just said. It's like pseudo-economic. The government approaches this. Like yeah. the, I do, I'm not hopeful in the Paris Climate Accord, for instance. No. I was happy the president pulled out of it because I thought it was... Garbage. Yes. And it wasn't necessarily because of climate science. It was because of, well, the economic assumptions in that accord and wealth transfers and certain economies. And like, don't try to plan this globally. It won't work. I just am of the mindset. This isn't going to work out well. That for me, it's a lot easier to plan on how to save yourself from falling off a ledge than it is to figure it out when you're falling off a ledge. Hmm. That being said, necessity is the mother of invention. So maybe if enough people's homes burn down or enough towns flood, people will figure it out. Well, and I think if we don't really figure out some fascinating... Not that I, I want those things to happen. No, I, I don't either. But, I mean, if we don't come up with some new, very creative ways to solve these issues, what will happen? Well, people will move away from the coasts. They'll thin out forest more. So this sort of thing doesn't happen. I mean, there will be responses to these events one way or another. I don't think the Midwest can handle more people. No. No. No, it's, there's too much in the flat plains. <laughs> Actually, I heard last week that Carrion Johnson of the Detroit Lions tried to put himself on the injury report with a frozen ass. That's why he tried to list his injury ass. <laughs> Now, I could see someone from Madison, Alabama going up to Detroit and being like, oh, this is really different than down here. Well, and this all came up because we're taking the Stan Lee uh, comic that he wrote. And he died today at 95 years old. Incredible man. One of the most influential creators, artists probably in American life. And now globally, given the reach of Marvel movies. Yeah. Uh, I think what he was able to do with his team, Jack Kirby, deserves a huge shout out as well. Uh, yeah, I would. 
I would say if we're going to compare them to Marvel characters, Jack Kirby is the one above all. Yes. And okay. Stanley is Uatu the Watcher. Right. Huh. That, you, you that's for you nerds out there. Yeah. No, I know. I've had these late night YouTube rabbit holes where I'm like, who's the watcher? Who's the one above all? Who's yeah. eternity? Yeah. Like, you know, the one above all he just shows up in a Spider Man comic. And you're what, like, what? What's the tribunal? What's the one? The I, I can't remember what it is called. The one that Thanos is trying to draw in? Yeah, or no, it's something anyway, let's not get into Regardless. it. Regardless. And so Stanley in 07's calling out, okay, we're divided. We're very, very divided. He even brings up immigration. And brings up terrorism. Now we're divided on war. Well, and that's the most interesting thing. This is, remember, circa 2007, folks. This is the war in Iraq. The, the, the shouts to pull out of Afghanistan and Iraq were starting to get pretty loud, right? Right. This is right as the presidential election of 08 ramping up. We're starting to move to the private companies. big argument was over the surge. Oh, Did the right. surge work? certain aspects of it, I suppose. It, it depends on what you mean by worked, and this is the problem to this day right. with what we're doing over there. But the war in Iraq has divided our nation. It's interesting how, like, we don't talk about foreign policy much these days. Other than, like, uh, Trump's too cozy with Russia and Putin. Or North Korea. I mean, I think the North Korea thing's just great right now. But I mean, like, in terms of, like, real argument and discussion between the political parties, it's kind of sad. And if anything, the mainstream Democratic Party has moved to the right on foreign policy. Like, let's sanction more people. It's just, I don't know, I've learned that don't follow the politicians. Follow, like, scholars and foreign policy thinkers if you want to get good foreign policy discussions. Because the politicians are just going to take whatever position is most advantageous. True. I will really say, are. though, that from both of those types of sources of information, you would get more information to inform your opinion from scholars yes. rather than politicians. However, if you were to do your due diligence, it would have to be through multiple scholars. Yes. <laughs> because, as is the case often with scholarly, well, they, scholarly things, it's, you know, through a microscope. They all disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they well, they all have a different perspective is a better way to put it. Because oh especially God. something as complicated as... Uh, Sorry, Hillary popped up on the TV on Fox and I... We're pro or we're anti with no room in between, writes Stan Lee. And yet, there is hope. We can still be united, no matter the squabbling, no matter the rage. We're Americans all, now and forever. The views that conflict us are now what make us strong. One thing will sustain us, as it has in the past. It won't be forsaken and it can't be destroyed. You can't, it, you can't touch it or see it, but it's in the air that we breathe. It's the greatest idea any nation could have. You know, one of my favorite writers said that America is unique because it's the first nation that's really written into existence. It's an, it really is an idea. Yeah. Whereas a lot of other nations are founded out of blood and, and soil or ethnic unity or conquest of all sorts of different types of groups. The United States, for lack of a better word, really is an idea. It is a dream. And... As much, as much as we are divided these days, it gets to what happened uh, over this weekend with the marking the end of World War One, where uh, Macron, the French president, really gave a lashing to the idea of nationalism. That nationalism betrays patriotism, I think is the quote. With Trump sitting right there. Now, keep in mind, folks, it's not just Trump and American nationalism that's on the rise. Uh, but there's also, you know, Chinese nationalism very much on the rise. Russian nationalism. English nationalism. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, nationalism all over the world. And it takes on different varieties. But I read a fascinating piece from an immigrant, also in the Atlantic today. He said, you know, if you really look at it, is American nationalism like anything else? Because America is an idea. Is it wrong to be a nationalist about the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? 
to say that we can draw big, bold lines of American interest come first as long as you keep that moral center. Now, this is Macron's argument that by saying you're a nationalist, you don't keep that moral center, this universal. Uh, and, you know, honestly, the more I hear all this stuff, all these arguments, I'm like, you're all full of crap. I'm sorry. The French are in it for the French. They really are. Or really, not even the French are in it for the French. The French leaders are in it for certain things they think are beneficial to their interest and to the people they care about. Yeah. Can, can you blame them? No. That's how people work. Right. So, to a degree, you know, this idea of, of national interest and self-interest are just practical. My problem with nationalism is that Americans don't have one given interest. We don't. No. And what we are interested in, especially given both the geographical distance between most Americans and the distance in what we are interested in, it often involves incredibly nuanced things. Right. Or there is an incredible amount of nuance to it. You're not going to get simple answers. Right. Nor should we. And as Stanley's suggesting... Our strength is these arguments that we have in good faith with one another. These different perspectives we have. I was I was about to mention good faith and bad faith actually, mm. um, because Macron's answer to nationalism relative to patriotism, it seems like he's saying if it's done in bad faith, it's bad. Right. <laughs> Right. right. It's like, so, okay, it, Captain Obvious. It's almost like he could go up there and just say, uh, I don't know what it is in French, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Gee, there she is again. Gosh. Can we turn off the television? I, I want to turn it off. Because Troy's getting upset by Hillary Clinton. Look at her face, bro. I don't, I don't, no. I don't want to look at that face. Sorry. Yeah, because you're a sexist pig. No, because I don't want to talk about... I'm tired of my good friend Troy being distracted from our conversation by her ugly mug. Yeah, I said it. No, and my theory, by the way, that somebody who has more sex appeal, physical attractiveness wins, is playing out all over the nation. Yeah. Now, really, I get pressed when it's Rick Scott against Bill Nelson in Florida because they both look like skeletons. I'm just going to say Rick Scott is the younger skeleton, so he'll end up winning the Senate seat. Less, less desiccated? Yes. Less okay. like somebody you know shoved a few Botox needles in his face and really messed up that, uh, that facelift. Yeah. Nelson does not look good. Like one of those older guys who did way too much. You know, it's one thing if it's done a little bit. And it's untastefully, but when you go way too far where you just look like a doll, no, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. But then Arizona, for a while it looked like the Republican, the fighter pilot, McSally, was going to win. I said, no, 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 no. When it's too close to call, go with the one who's hotter. Yep. So right now, cinema's up. My theory's being played out. Didn't they call it? I think it's called, but who the hell knows? We're still, we're almost in the next week. We are into next week. And you can't concede anymore. No. Now it's count the provisional ballots. Well, well It's like, wait, 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 wait. Most of those, we got to check if those are correct. We had a gentleman's agreement. I conceded. But <laughs> that was before someone asked me if that had any hold within the law. <laughs> and even though Bush at first score in the Supreme Court kind of said it did. Right. We're just going to, let's, you know, I. I rescind my concession. Right. Now, well, now, to the point of nationalism, I'm all for a nationalism that is essentially what Stan Lee's laying out in this 150th anniversary of the Atlantic. The idea that you have freedom of religion, that we try to live up to an idea where people can be of all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities, and they're all Americans and they look to basic values that unite them. That is a form of nationalism. That the nation will unite. This idea, this dream unites us. Yeah. That's fine with me. And I think that is better than, say, what has been described as kind of pluralistic multiculturalism. Where the idea is tolerance. is Tolerance is part of the American ideal. But I think if you unite under nation, um, it, it probably is going to help more. That said, sometimes when I hear people talk about 
American nationalism or Chinese nationalism or any other nationalism. They're not talking about values and ideals. They're talking about, I want more money and jobs and, uh, and, and defense obligations. Like, it, it comes down into, I want more security and comfort. And, and if it means having to cut other nations out for that security and comfort, so be it. Which is a basic human instinct, but if, if it becomes unhinged from your basic values, it's going to be a problem. So I don't have any problem with, I love the ideals of this nation. I like American culture. I don't think I would be that welcomed in other cultures around the world. I don't think I would feel at home. Right. But sometimes when the when the government goes too far and the left and the right both do it, where in order to be a good American you must serve whatever is the latest political agenda of the day, it's just nonsense. No, it's not. The values are a bit more timeless than Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Right. And it it doesn't help when the idea of what it means to be an American, both from an American perspective in a different section of the country than our own yeah. or from a foreign perspective is condensed down into a caricature, yes. whether that be through art or satire, satire or whatever. Right. You know, you, you got you got people in the Pacific Northwest hating Californians because they move up to the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> you know, and they blame Californians for their problems like the, the naked guy that. Right. Takes a dump in the park and he's homeless. That's the Californians, and all of these people, I would imagine, share some ideas of what it means to be an American. Well, and there is a bit of a tension here, though. If you take this liberty idea too seriously, you have to, you go. Well, why do we even need DC? Like you might at the end of the day go, well, maybe if we got to take on like the Chinese army or the Russian army. Other than that. Like, why do we need this one group of people, even if they are elected, to tell everybody in the country what to do? We're going to go back to the mid to late 1700s for this answer and look at the multiple provisional governments that were tried to be established and see how woeful those were before the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written. Yes, but I think the Articles of Confederation didn't get its due. I think that there are certain people who gave us the Constitution we currently have, which we have. It's not really much of a way to go back, but it's a fun discussion. Okay. I think the Articles of Confederation were working just fine. Were they written on vellum? Because that's not vegan. <laughs> I think the Articles were working just fine, and it wasn't working for certain groups of people. Oh, and they happened to be the people that could go meet and have a constitutional convention. So it's a class thing now? Oh, it's a class thing, and it's also, they didn't even, it was a bloodless coup. They didn't even go through the process the articles laid out in order to have the new constitution. But what's the one we have? It's worked pretty well. Yeah, it's worked all right. I mean, other than that whole, you know, hundreds of thousands dead in the Civil War. Right. You know, that. Other than that, we've been pretty good. We've had stability. Yeah. Yeah. You know. We got a good thing going here. We got a good thing going. <laughs> Let's just not mess it up too much. I think a big part of that is trying to do too much. It's like, no, stop it. Like, stop it. No, Hillary. No, Donald. My goodness, if I have to watch a replay of that in 2020, I'm just going to snap. Not because I'm one for one side or another. It's like I've seen this thing already. Yep. It's like when WCW got those old guys. They got Hulk Hogan and they got the Ultimate Warrior. They're like, oh, we're going to relive the glory days of Warrior versus Hogan that was happening in the WWF. And it was terrible. Hulk Hogan tried to blow a fireball in his face. It, the paper didn't even light up. You could see him lighting it with a stupid big collider. Warrior's so on cloud nine because he's on pain medication and cocaine that you barely makes sense of anything he's saying. <laughs> Neither of them know how to actually work a match that looks somewhat good. And that's what 2020 is going to be. It's going to be a rehash. And I don't want that. Give me somebody other than Hillary. And Nancy. Oh, God. Nancy Pelosi. Keep her away. And Chuck, keep him away. And why are, why are they so old? And I now know I sound like some punk millennial kid. But why are we treating Congress like an assisted living facility? I read an interesting argument 
about how term limits for Congress are actually a bad thing. Yeah. And the the sort of premise of it was based on using the states as a testing ground for things on a national level. Mm-hmm. California actually instituted term limits for their senators. So you couldn't have someone who had 30 years. Sure. And what ended up happening was special interest groups would just plug and play their senators because no one could spend long enough in the Senate to get enough experience to combat the special interests who had been around for a long time and will be along will be there for a long time afterwards. And so it ended up just being a bunch of people paid and bought for by lobbyists with no pushback whatsoever. Hmm. That being said, it's, well, right, it's it the sense. same. It's almost the same thing we got now. So right. Well, I. It's not necessarily a system thing. It really isn't. I mean, some of it is systematic. There's a lot of pressures on it, but the system, for the most part, holds. is pretty consistent. Yeah. This is why the Democrats taking the House didn't surprise me whatsoever. I mean, it's just how the system works. And gridlock. Maybe it's a good thing. Blessing in disguise. But coming back, a great moment happened. It's a moment we almost got in trouble over last week. But the uh, Dan Crenshaw, he's now a member of Congress, or congressman-elect. And he showed up on uh, SNL to confront Pete Davidson. And it was a great moment. That, I, that, that was a good way to handle that. We'll talk about it after the break. Joey Clark. years ago. I'm trying to place it. You made this? Yeah. Is this Groove Patriot? Yeah. Okay. One of my alter egos. But uh, last week... Is that bass on a synth? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's good. I didn't play that bass. I like that. Anyway, a little taste. That's very justice. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very French. Maybe I would get along in other cultures. Who knows? I don't know. I love America. I do. I just don't like American politics right now. Yeah. I think it's this all or nothing socialist against populist. Like, no. I'm tired of this fight. Yeah. Like, why can't we just have freedom-loving Americans with freedom? Because people always <laughs> ask a question. Yeah. Uh, you, were, you were talking to me about the, about the Swiss model off air. Yeah. And you mentioned how the central government controls basic human rights. And I thought to myself, well, what is a basic human right? And when you ask that question in our current government, you're going to get mm-hmm. two different sets of answers. Well, one side's obviously wrong. Why? Though? Actually, both sides are wrong. Because the one side that claims are all about just liberty and free markets, you know, I'm talking about the Republicans, they're full of crap. Yeah. And then for the socialists to say, you know, certain things like health care or basic human right, I'm like, no, it's a basic human need in a way, but it's not a right. Could you unpack that a little bit for me? I would say, as a general rule of thumb... Anything that requires you commandeering other people and their resources for it to be provided to you, it's not a basic human right. It's just how being an animal on this planet plays out? 
No, like the right to your life. You have your life, and there you go. And that life has basic liberties, and you can you have the choice to pursue that life and use that liberty as you see fit, as long as you don't, you know, take away other people's. Break laws? Yeah. Well, basically take their stuff or, you know, hurt them in some way, all of the way to the point of killing them. Okay, theft, assault and battery. No assault and battery, no murder, no rape. No raping. No. That's good. Right. Right. That's about it. No, you know, no fraud. Okay. Basic things. What about... And then everything else is kind of governed by voluntary, you know, consent contracts, these sort of things. Which Contracts? Yeah, which would, you know, kind of build into things called municipalities, which I understand. That would work, but I think healthcare, like... Other basic necessities like housing and food, basic necessities of living. Healthcare, which is a lot of different things too. It's yeah. not just one like we threw healthcare at the guy and he got better. Like no, healthcare is all sorts of different services and goods. We tried that with snake oil, right? That didn't work. So I, I think healthcare could be provided uh, much cheaper at lower costs if we you know, freed it up a great deal more. Okay. Yeah. And didn't treat it like... Because when somebody starts saying it's a basic human right, then they're going to say, well, that means the government must provide it. Why? Because that's what the government does. It secures our rights. It secures them. Mm Mm-hmm. Provides them? Right. Those are two different things, right? I suppose, but that's what the argument comes from, is universal health care provided by the government. In one form or another, because healthcare is a right. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's not. And it's it's a service or a good that other people provide. I think there's a distinction between a good, a service, and a right. And a utility. A utility? Yeah. Water. Mm-hmm. Gas. Natural gas. I yeah. Say. Internet? Would you consider that a utility? Uh, I wouldn't want to treat the internet like a utility, no. Okay. Because I think, well, less control the better on the internet. Okay. We're getting too far afield. That's the problem. You can't can't have a discussion about huge, broad ideas without at least deliberating on the nuance of them. Right. But these ideas are so big and broad that it encompasses so much. Right. It's usually the problem. There's too little time and too much to talk about. And an hour radio show? Yeah, for sure. But given what I really want to talk about... Let's hear it. It's the way people go about it. way they go about talking about it? These broad ideas and the nuance of it. Yeah. Which, you know... I'm often wrong. I generally think say things like healthcare on a right, but it's something we should do our damnedest as a experts and you know, whether doctors or nurses to provide to people. Right. But maybe I end up compromising a certain degree, like it's provided more at a state level or a certain safety nets provide like high risk pools for people that are down and out. Am I really spending all my days and nights trying to take down Medicaid and Medicare? Well, maybe. Uh, but. He's not. It's the way people talk about it. In terms of how passionate they get? Yes. It's like if you suggest a. Not Joey's suggestion that abolish Medicare. Well, what would you do with all the money that's been paid in? Like, give it back to the people that paid in? Like, these seniors that are now 65 and older? Give it back to them. Give them back the. Oh, wait, you don't have the money. Interesting. Where did it go? Right. Interesting. Anyway, not even suggesting that, which is pretty radical, abolishing Medicare. I doubt it'll happen. No. But if you suggest, "Mm, maybe we could do like a payment support plan, like where essentially you get like a stipend to go out and buy health, like almost like the GI Bill, but for medical care. Like, we'll give you this amount of money. You go purchase health insurance with this, this grant, this stipend, this voucher. Like the Republicans suggested, Paul Ryan suggested it a few years ago. It said it, it's more of a, it's a tax credit now. Right. 
There's all sorts of different ways. But how did Democrats respond to that? They played an ad of a Paul Ryan lookalike throwing Granny off the cliff. Literally had an ad doing that. Was it a Granny lookalike? Yes. Yeah, well, it was an actual old woman. Oh. Old woman! Oh man! Well, I didn't. Old man! I'm not old! I'm 37! Well, man, I can't just call you man. My name's Dennis. I didn't know your name was... Anyway, Monty Python. Look it up, folks. The point is that uh, people are at each other's throats. You can't have an honest disagreement over whether it's health care or education, whatever it is. And certainly over being offended by things. Like, if you, you the person on the other side or a different tribe says something that offends you... Well, then we must get outraged, and we must make sure that person loses their job and possibly their livelihood altogether. Like, go away. the In exile, good sir. The only thing worse to me than intentionally misinterpreting what some, some something says, somebody says something in bad faith, the only thing worse than that to me is policing tone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like... If if you want to get upset and yell, go right ahead. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'll take it. You know, I'm not gonna be like, right. whoa. Okay, first of all, I don't like that tone. Don't do that. No, like people are passionate about things. Right. Go right on ahead. But then you have, outside of the tone, police. You have the people that, as you just so eloquently put, with throwing grandmother off the edge of a cliff. It's useful. That is intentionally misinterpreting something. Well, and also outrage is useful. Not to me. It's useful. It could get somebody fired. It's like it would easily have been the case after Pete Davidson makes a terrible, not really funny joke about Dan Crenshaw, who has an eye patch because he lost his eye, serving Afghanistan for the third time, IED, you know, hits him in the face. It'd be very easy for Dan Crenshaw to, you know, really throw Davidson under the bus. Really let him have it. Because, I mean, Davidson was already getting it without Crenshaw saying much. Well, guess who showed up on Weekend Update to this weekend on SNL? Dan Crenshaw? Dan Crenshaw. Davidson began the segment by apologizing. I messed up, guys. Um, it wasn't funny. And I, I just wasn't mean. That's true. It wasn't right. And I just, I, I didn't think so. Please, Dan, take shots at me. Which Crenshaw? Number one, he didn't, didn't, you know, twist the knife. He said apology accepted, forgave the guy. He wasn't really all that offended. And he said that I think Pete Davidson looks like the meth in Breaking Bad. If the meth was a human being. The clapback. Yeah, or Pete Davidson looks like a troll who has tapeworm or something like that. That is true. He, I, I would classify Pete Davidson as gaunt. Right. But then the best part of it is that Crenshaw you know, did the jokes back, which is, this is the great thing. It's like roast battles. It's like, if you want to get outraged, just let it out. Yeah. It's in good faith. It's the distinction between good and bad faith. Mm-hmm. And another way you can spot bad faith, it's somebody playing a role. It's like, I'm supposed to be Mr. Dutiful Republican here. I'm supposed to be the Democrat pundit here. Yeah. I'm the I'm the the nominee for the Democratic Party. I'm the nominee for the Republican Party. I have to play my role. And then sometimes people do that so badly it's transparent that they're just playing a role, like Mitt Romney. Anyway, <sighs> Crenshaw, after making the jokes back at Davidson, said, "By the way, uh, you don't have to say thank you for my." Thank you for your service to me. You can, and I appreciate you saying that, Pete. Uh, but I would prefer that we break down this barrier between civilian and those who have served. Because the reason I'm served is very much for the reasons I think you experienced personally. How about we say never forget and shake each other's hand? Because I know your father passed in 9-11. And they shook hands, and the segment kind of ended. And as you heard Colin jo- Yost and uh, who's the other guy's name? Michael Shea, mm-hmm. uh, sign off. You could hear Davidson shaking Crenshaw's hand and in his ear saying, you're a good man. Thank you so much. Like, it was, 
it was a rare moment. The next morning, Crenshaw was on the Today Show. They're like, why'd you do this? He's like, well, why can't everybody just stop looking to be offended? Right. That's the difference, and I see what you mean by tone police. It's like, it's one thing if you, I, this happens to me all the time. I get genuinely upset and blah. But if you're looking to be offended, to where it's use, you realize that being offended and outraged is something is useful to getting your way in one way or another, just stop it. Actually, deal with people in good faith. Don't play the role, the bad faith role, whatever role you're playing. Try to get to know the person that pissed you off. Because sometimes when somebody offends you, so to speak, it is a, a way to learn about yourself. Right. Like, why did that offend me? Right. Why am I so sensitive about this? And it can be a way to, especially when it's over comedy. My goodness. It's like a joke can just, a comedian cannot be thinking deeply, make a terrible joke. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's not some deeper plot by, like, the Democratic media establishment. Right. My God. Pete Davidson is not that intelligent. Which he would admit. That gives him far too much credit. Right. Well, and also I left out that before Dan Crenshaw started doing jokes, his cell phone started ringing. It was Ariana Grande's song. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Those who don't know, Pete Davidson used to date Ariana Grande. Yeah, and you could see that Davidson was kind of like, all right, man. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, I, I wish there was more of that, but I think there's sometimes just too much of like the, we have to win. I have to win the power. As opposed to, well, I have my space, you have your space, and let's see if we can work together. If we can't, we'll go our separate way. Right. Politics demands, no, somebody must fight and somebody must win. That, that brings us back to the us versus them. Yeah. I know we haven't really discussed it tonight, as it were, but we have discussed it. And if you're playing a role, what if you're not even attempting to play that role, but you get shoved into that role? Right. Like... Uh, with that fellow last week that called in. Yeah. He said, you were liberal or I was liberal. One of, yeah. Or the show was liberal. Yeah. We talk about some liberal things, sure. I suppose. But to, to be shoved into that role? No. I'm not. You're not. I'm only liberal in the classic sense of that word. Like, I actually believe in liberty for right. everybody. I mean, I saw a great line from one of the original liberals, Frederick Bastiat. Said, all of you who want to reform everything, why don't you reform yourselves first? And then I would have added, big boy. <laughs> but he's got a point. Um, there, there's a, there's, my general approach is speak my mind, but at the end of the day, I'm allowed to speak my mind passionately and over the top because I'm not trying to force anything on you. Right. I'm really not. Which to some people, I guess, is some weird form of tyranny. That because I'm not down with the cause, then I'm the one that's going to cause all the problems. I, oh, the, Failing to do something. Poor you to suffer from enlightened centrism. Yeah, I know. 